hopefully my um, system will work. Oh, that's okay. Like, uh, you know, we'll just figure it out on the fly, right? Um, yeah, if it drops off, sometimes it drops off up here in Hamilton. We don't have the same sort of technology as Christchurch. Well, we are in the middle of Middle Earth. Hmm. So, um, yeah, it's a beautiful place. Nice to be able to like drop off, drop off the grid. Hmm. Really. Totally. Nice. Um, yep. I just want to say thank you for, you know, agreeing to have a conversation in the first place. And a shout out to um, uh, a member at the gym who who pushed me onto you, Jess. Um, she will no doubt probably be listening. So thank you, mate. Absolute legend. Um, I'll give Wicked. you, I give you some space to introduce yourself, I guess, and uh, all the stuff that you've done, which is insane. Yeah, it's a tricky one, eh? Like it's I always feel a little bit embarrassed talking about the things I've been able to be involved in, but I've been very lucky. Uh, I was a traditional clinical psychologist by training. I'm not at the moment now. I, I guess now I think it was 19 or 20 years. I didn't re- just pull my registration, so I've retired. Um, that started off in forensics. I was working with some of the most at risk, uh, serious offenders in Auckland um, in the community. And it was when I was doing my training as a clinical psych, and then I worked with um, or our social services or child, youth and family. Um, and we have a little branch that's connected with the police through the child abuse team. So I spent a lot of time there. Um, so I guess I was working in the dark lands, really. Mm. And then had two daughters. And then as a part of becoming a dad and, you know, it became a little bit more difficult to have compassion and empathy for people that chose violence and hurting children. Um, and so I started to just, you know, just as a hobby, I started to work, um, put together a program for sport, and that was probably would have been early 30s. And there wasn't many people working in sports psychology and sport at that point. And then I think it was mid, maybe the mid 2000s, I started to work as a, um, I guess as a psychologist or performance psychologist, because I had no idea really what that was, as I was just drawing across from clinical psychology into sport. And I was working with a um, club premier rugby team in the Waikato for three years and uh, a golf team, um, one of the local golf penance teams. And the rugby team did pretty bloody well. And then that opened a door just through someone knowing I was doing that. And I didn't even know who they were, but they knew that I was doing that with um, this particular sport, this rugby team. And then did a little bit of work with the county's rugby academy and Northland Rugby Academy. And then it's amazing how opportunities just come along for people, eh? and whether you step into them or not, defines your, your destiny. Mm. And then the rugby union asked me to go to Wellington and just talk a little bit about what I was doing with the academies as part of the Mental Skills Network, which was establishing through a guy called Mike Chu at the rugby, and he did a lot in that space for the, the, the discipline back in the old days. And I, yeah, I said, sure, yeah, I'll pop down. So I went down, and my program was called Mental... Um, no, Killer Instinct Sports Psychology for Rugby. That was what it was called. <laughs> and so I was about to talk to about four or five people in one of the big rooms in the old rugby union building down on the harbour, and the door opens and all the super rugby coaches walk in. Wow. And because they were obviously doing their yearly catch-up, I had no idea then really what was what. And they sat down, so there must have been about, well, we must be about 15 of them. And then they sat down and then the doors opened again and then walked Shag, um, Ted and Wayne Smith. And then they sat down and Mike Drew goes, oh, there you go, David, carry on. And I had just about to start. And the, I think pretty much the first line I said, um, Wayne Smith put his hand up and he goes, I think you're completely wrong, mate. Well, I don't know what planet you're on. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> um, and then I just thanked him for his feedback. I, mean, I can't remember exactly what I said. I went, oh, cheers, Smithy. Hmm. I'll take that on board. Um and then at the end of the uh, end of my presentation, Shag walks over and goes, "Mate, I think you're right. Oh, I think you're on the right track. That's exactly right." <laughs> so I'm like, "Oh, okay." Um, and that really, and then Ian Foster came up to me afterwards and said, 
you, where are you based? You know, like it, and that was the start of it, really. That's where I met Fozzie. I shot in and caught up with Fozzie and um, the coaches, you know, the following week and talked a little bit about what I was doing. And then he gave me an opportunity to talk to, I think, nine of the men in a little group. Um, the senior men, he got them together and gave me an hour with them to talk about what I did. And and obviously just that was the start. That was the start of it, really. And you know, it's funny. It's, it's when you look back, like that was two thousand and eight. And I spent eleven years with the Chiefs, um, right, right through until 19, 2019. Um, so I wrapped up with them after Colin Cooper finished. So with Fozzie for three years, Dave Rennie for six, and ironically Smitty came along with with friends and. Um, I love Smithy the bits, and we had some amazing, you know, had some amazing opportunities to learn from him while he was with the with the Chiefs, and, and we both laugh now about how we first met. Um, <laughs> so I was very lucky to spend that much time with him because he was influ- he was obviously amazingly influential for the evolution of, uh, you know, what Chiefs became in that era. Mm. And then um, Colin Cooper and finished with Colin. Cooper when Coop's finished because I knew Coop's before he came there. So, you know, you'll, you'll know that too. Rugby's such a small community mm-hmm. and really good people. Um, and Colin Cooper's one of the best of them. Um, so they had, you know, that was a formative time really. Eh? Like I was working in the Olympic space then too because it was, I was very lucky to come into sports psychology at the front of the wave really. I was the only clinical psychologist in the business. Um, and that's, you know, it's a, automatically gives you a little bit of a, an advantage because the reputation of a clinical, clinical site is quite strong. So it really did, I believe, open some doors that wouldn't have opened probably otherwise. Mm. And then the, the, the industry just took off. So I was crossed from rugby pretty quickly into um, high-performance sport. Back then it was the old academy of sport. And had three, so I've been in three Olympics, involved in three Olympics now, um, campaigns. Um, I met Gordon Titchens in 2009, 2009, 2010. Um, and then I've been with the Sevens boys for ever since. So come up to 12 years with them. Um, and then obviously a big chunk of that time with Titch. And then um, Clark Laidlaw is there now. So again, the learning with you know the people, all very different people, but the learning is just massive eh, when you mm. spend, spend that much time in one space. And then I uh, had a chance to work with Jamie Joseph and the Japan crew in the World Cup in Japan, um, which was an amazing um, experience. But again, just classy coaches, eh? So, you know, Brownie and Jake are just next level. Uh, they work, you know, they, they complement and work together incredibly well. So, again, I was very lucky to step into a space where highly coached, great structure, um, really good processes, great leadership teams, good men. Um, so you, you can't help but, you know, just learn an amazing amount mm. in those environments. And, you know, this, and they've all been pretty successful. Um, all those environments are pretty, you know, pretty up there with regards to performance and outcome. Um, you know, I've had some down times as well. You know, I remember I had my darkest, I think, fuzzy. First year of Fozzie, we went to the finals um, against the Bulls. And I think the next year we finished, we finished 10th or 14th. We remember the next year was dark. Like we, I think we had, anyone that knows Super Rugby, you lose, I think we lost six in a row or five in a row. It's dark, dark times, man, when it starts to get that dark. Um, you know, and then obviously the time with, um, Renz and Smithy and um, Tom Coventry and Andrew Strawbridge was the heyday, really. That, that was when I think the, the franchise really stepped into a, a completely new dimension. Um, and then obviously Gordon Titchens is an amazing man and has a great legacy, great history. Um, he's a unique man, but, um, amazing man. And then obviously Clark Laidlaw's top shelf. Um, you know, that team's won under his coaching everything except the one game at the Olympics in Tokyo so 
uh, doing some amazing things. Obviously, it'll be changed now because a lot of our men are so you know, senior men are moving on and some are going to 15. So it'll be a rebuilding for us over there. But you can guarantee that that crew will be round about it again at um, Paris. So I guess summarising all of that, yeah, man, I've been very lucky to turn my hobby into something that's paid the mortgage. Mm. Um, Learn, you know, everything I do, I'm really clear with people. It's, it's, it's the product of being around some sensational, amazing coaches um, and seeing how they do what they do and then some amazing athletes that you know like I feel really embarrassed because I reckon they would have all done what they did without me because they teach me more than I ever teach them um, so you know I've got you know I've been very very lucky and I feel very um, I do feel embarrassed because of you know I guess that maybe not luck but it feels like it's been a lovely run you know, I'm 49 now. I'm kicking into learning how to be a sheep and beef farmer. Uh, my dad's my coach and mentor now because he's an old school farmer. Mm. Bought a little block. I've never owned land, so I bought a little block and you know, I spent a lot of time with my mum and dad. And you know, obviously, I'm still doing. You know, I'm still doing a lot of sport, but it's certainly becoming. It's a funny. It's a funny, funny transition. You know, you become very familiar, and I guess it's like a relationship, really. You know, it goes through the early phases of being, oh, yeah, this is amazing. And then you get into the, you know, you get into the middle parts, which is, you know, some, I guess, the bread and butter business of having kids and doing the hard yards. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then you get to a point where it might be a little bit like your, you know, the long summer, you know, like it feels like I'm in that space where I feel really lucky to have found a point where I know what I'm doing mm-hmm. and feel really clear about that. And then that's, that's pretty you know, I find it's pretty special to get to that point, but it's not a, it's certainly not a complacency either. Like I still work, doesn't matter who it is I'm talking with, I'm treating them like they're the, you know, the, they're all treated the same and I work my ass off to try and figure out how to help them get, um, achieve their dreams and be their best. So I know what I'm doing, but I'm also not sure, you know, like if it's a nice little balance of knowing what I'm doing, but also never resting in that space of, oh, I, uh, I I know everything, you know. Mm. Like it's, and there's there. I'm really clear. I'm, I know three or four times the academic that I am. Like I struggle with academic conversations. My, I mean, I've applied 15 times to the clinical psychology program because every university has one. So for three years, I applied to every university. So on the 15th application, I got an interview. So I was just desperate for men. Um. You know, there's no way, there's no way I'd get in the clinical psychology programs these days that the levels are just insane with the type of people that make those programs. So, you know, I guess the sun was shining at the right times in my life, and I just happened to be there. So, well, you yeah, I guess that's where I get though, to right? now. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, and that's a really good point. I think my underpinning value base is, um, you know, if I put words to it. Because, you know, a value system for me, you'll have your, your primary value base, but you'll have anti-values as well. I call them anti-values, um, which is the, obviously the contrasting ones. Um, and for me, probably the primary value I have is I'll die before I give up. And that's probably allowed me to achieve what I have because it's not brains that have got me there, that's for sure. Um, it's That's the, oh, yeah, that didn't work. I remember I remember Fozzie called me into his office one day after a team session. But he said, oh, that didn't go very well, did it, David? <laughs> so I'm really grateful to Fozzie because he helped me find my way. You know, like if it had been a different coach, he probably wouldn't have, you know, he was bloody, he was very guiding and understanding and allowed me to find my way in the sport um, and or I suppose in that industry. So, yeah, so the, didn't give up. I think that's um, a really, really important fun. story. Like, because there's, you know, we kind of live in a world where everyone wants to be perfect, right? It's like, I can't do anything mm. wrong. I can't fail. I can't trip up. I can't make a wrong decision, a wrong turn or anything. And it's like, mm. you are a living proof of, nah, just keep throwing shit against the wall. Eventually something's going to stick. And then mm. all the formula and then keep going. Like, that's it's inevitable. Life is a gray area. We're going to make the wrong decisions. We're going to, we're going to try something and it's not going to work out. Like, that's inevitable. And... Being able to keep going is the only thing that we got, right? Mm. 
I love the I love listening and talking to people who fail magnificently. You know, like it's a when when they've put in everything that they could, they've invested, they've had you know discipline and diligence, and it all fails. <laughs> it's like okay, now they have integrity because mm-hmm. they get nothing. They get nothing in return. You know, you get a gold medal or whatever it is, and that's fantastic icing or cherry on the icing on top of the cake. But I really love the stories of people that you know, throw the book at it and, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's a full stop. There's no, there's no nice ending. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, you do <laughs> what, what next? And that's really rare that someone can have that philosophy and do, do that. Like I find that really special because most people will only invest if they've got a reasonable chance of success. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, we think about the definition of success and they'll, they may be not fully invested until they get some, reassurance is going to go okay mm-hmm. and then that's you know that's never pure and they don't feel it they don't feel it either they know it's not purity because it's hedged got um, to, but when you find people who aren't hedged that's special yeah for sure you've got you've got to have uh met rock bottom right you've got to know where it mm. is mm. like hey i've been down there and i'm not going back like this something's got to work you know, if I yeah. give you everything I have and it doesn't work, I've got to find a way. Like, yeah, you've got to find a way. Totally, find a yeah. way or make and one. When right? you, yeah, and the more you have online, the more that <coughs> the fear the fear is real. And then, if you're able to hold yourself in that space and 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 embrace it, um, feel it, feed it, smell it, taste it, be with it. And then all of a sudden it's not fear anymore. It's just energy. And then if you've got a good mentor, a good coach, a good plan, and then you get underway, mate, that's that's the gold right there if you can generate that because that's where the magic really happens because most people are influenced by the fear in a way which inhibits them mm. um, and becomes a handbrake in the process and they try and repress it or stop it or get rid of it or take some drugs for it or you know, whatever it is, and I've missed the point that they've actually, what they've done then is they've basically squashed life. Um, and then there's no way, you know, a lot of athletes will say, oh, they feel flat before their biggest moment or they'll feel lethargic just before they play and they don't know what it's about. And, you know, for me, those are the signs straight away that someone's scared and they've repressed it mm. or they're scared and they've distracted themselves and they haven't acknowledged it or haven't leaned into it or embraced it or wanted it or the relationship with it's wrong and you see, you see that often you know like you'll hear dry reaching in the changing room or you'll just see various rituals which are all fear-based trying to escape and not 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 feel it you know music or dancing or whatever it might be but not as an intentional purity that's the avoidance of the pressure and so there's something magic about um having having a um, I guess it's not a religious thing, it's a spiritual world when I say that word spirit. For me, spirit is about energy. Mm-hmm. And so it's more than a character or a trait or a state. It's you know, there's something very deep about the person that has a a relationship with the universe where they understand their mortality. They ain't too fussed about it, whether they die at 30, 50, 70, 90. Um, if it happens, you know, when it happens, it happens. It's just part of the way the world flows or the universe flows. So, you know, if you can have that sort of peace with it all, then that flows off into peace with failing and peace with, um, yeah, and ironically, the other end of the continuum, peace with, with uh, glory, you know, because a lot of people get blown away by glory as much as they do by the fear of failure. And so if you have that really core base um, where the essence of yourself is incredibly humble, and incredibly competitive, then you've got a lovely mixture because you've got someone that will run onto a field and go, oh, hey, they'll be there because they love it. Um, and then secondly, you know, there's a real sense that um, those key moments where others will back off or have a break or be on the heels of their feet, these these ones are, they are, they are leaping in. You know, they're leaping in there like that is the essence of life and it is for them. 
Um, so it's a very special place if you can if you can find that um, relationship with it all. It changes it changes the face of the moment. It, it certainly changes it from being one of a sporting moment, which it will always be. It's always I never try and take that away from an athlete that that is a big sporting moment. Yet when we find the place that we're talking about at the moment, it's no longer about sport at all. Totally. You know, it's like essentially, it's essentially you're standing next to William Wallace, you know, or standing next to Robert the Bruce with your ancestors. It's the same feeling, the same moment, it's the same place. So, you know, it's a addictive it's one. It's addictive for them when right? they totally, and it's addictive for them when they understand that and find the recipe to to be able to go there regularly and repeatedly. It's certainly addictive helping people go, you know, you really, that's why I love UFC. The first time I saw UFC, it was like, whoa, that's brutal. Mm. But the more I look at it, the more I think about it, it's probably one of the, you know, I think rugby's the same. You know, rugby, rugby league. Um, there's a few sports that have the same element of two people coming together and signing a waiver that you might die tonight and you accept that's no, no one's responsible. Mm-hmm. And, and then when you're in that context, it's a very different thing from netball or tennis. Or um, So there's just something about the combat space that mm-hmm. allows, I, I feel, a really different spiritual experience because you have to really become at one with the dark lands and the shadow. And, you know, if you go into that space, you willingly, you know, like there's this dark shadow there about you're okay with hurting somebody and potentially killing them and then you're okay that they might get you so there's you know even though that's not you think obviously you don't want to mm-hmm. but to be really in that dark space i believe that's process that is important and then you'll see some rugby players they won't they won't have gone to that place and usually every year in a super team you'll have four or five that they love that space or maybe five to maybe five to ten. Yeah, maybe five. You know, when I mean when I mean love that space, they they do. Mm. Um, and if you're on their days off, you can't find them. You know, they're in the boxing ring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a bit of club somewhere to have a fight. Um, and then you'll have maybe ten to fifteen within the team that, when someone smacks them on the nose, they then drop in. And then you'll have, so what's that, 20, 20 to 30, but then you'll have 15 to 20 of players that are very skilled, but they don't go in there. And then you'll have a couple that, you know, probably will never never make it. Um, so you can sort of see how the combat space really identifies that primal space that you just talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a hellishly exciting space to work in because it's, you know, I remember the, the psychologist ethics code is you should do no harm and not facilitate others to do harm. And so you can see how that doesn't fit. Mm. Man, in rugby, in rugby, you're working with athletes and trainers and coaches to dominate, to potentially do harm in the way that they play. Um, again, not intentionally, but you accept that's a byproduct of the brutality of it. Mm-hmm. So you can see how it's an interesting dilemma for practicing as a psychologist in that space because of the conversations that you're having, the emotions you're feeling, the things you're encouraging. Mm. Yep. Do you think it's um do you think everyone should have the ability to go to that place? Um if there's something about if I think there's two things in my mind, which is the dark side always needs a value base to hold it. So, you know, your dark and light values, compassion and brutality, you know, or competitiveness and empathy. Without, without the maybe human container those unbridled dark values are not, I don't believe, are beneficial for a community. And 
if you've got a good value base and you've got a shadow and you're open to going into that space, you certainly learn, you know, like people will learn about themselves and they'll learn about life in a completely different way mm. by being that, by going. And, you know, you know, like really, I do believe a secondary school education, um, there'll be some real benefit from making sure that everybody can swim in an ocean and everybody is required to do some form of self-defense and everyone's required and given opportunities to learn martial arts um, and then also do identity work and do community charity work as classrooms and spend every, you know, a day of their week each week actually out in the community giving back. So you can see how that you just don't, when you just teach them combat, um, it's a balance. And I think the Shaolin monks, probably the Kung Fu monasteries do that probably best out of all because yeah you know they've got to go through as a monk and as a kung fu um fighter and then in the end they're not allowed that's right yeah and they're not allowed to graduate on until they've got each bun Mm -hmm. all the way together and yeah you obviously you know those guys spend their entire lifetime in a monastery and they have to become as good with the Buddha teaching as they do with the Kung Fu. So that, that I think that's a lovely metaphor for, I'd love it. Imagine if everybody was as peaceful as a Shaolin Kung Fu mm-hmm. monk. The world would be a different place if they all had the um, harmony of those <laughs> things. Because, you know, if we think about dictatorships around the world, that's a result of, it's too dark. They're just dark. Um so yeah, so I'd, yeah, I certainly believe humanity lives in all places, and then that's the one that the society has sort of moved to a point where it's so safe and so um, uh, what's the word regulated and contained, so that everyone's okay. And and as you said earlier on, everyone has this moment about needing to be perfect, is that people are petrified of being unwell, um, which is really petrified of death. And then their obsessive anxiety-based behaviors, controlling, power and control, um, things that you know make people feel really unhappy, run run white, right, really. Mm. And so if you can, you know, you find harmony in the dark, you know, you find, you know, the metaphor is really powerful. When you can come up, become a I was talking to someone the other day about the old, when you're a kid, there's a monster under the bed. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, oh, you know, you just need to sit there and tell yourself there's no monster. And I was like, well, that's what we tell our kids, there's no monster, but what if we told them there is a monster? (laughs) And actually, we're going to go under the bed with them to meet the monster. Hmm. And then we're going to take a stick with us and hit it between the eyes so it doesn't behave itself. (laughs) Club it. Um, And then we're going to be friends with that monster, and he's going to become a pet. And we're going to bring him out from under the bed and he's going to get a little corner bed to go and sleep in. Mm. <laughs> and then you can see how now we've changed the whole dynamic of the conversation where it's not going to be afraid of the monster under the bed, but go find the monster under the bed. Mm. Because if we can move to that space, the sense of resilience and independent interdependence you grow in your children, yeah, yeah, they're monsters. But, you know, they're my mates as long as they can, as long as they behave and they don't behave, I'll smack them in the, smack them in the head. <laughs> Um, so I do believe that if we're going to find an internal harmony with ourselves, that's going to involve realizing our own darkness. It's going to involve realizing that within all of us, there is a potential murderer. There is potentially someone that could very easily, at the right context and a certain context, harm. Yep. Um, and then all of a sudden we go, oh, actually, so I'm not all lights and shining armor. It's actually badass and me too that and that allows me then to have empathy and connection for people that grow up in environments that might be you know violent and they learn that way rather than just being judging and exterminate so there's some real importance for us to have a balanced community and balanced society that people are able to know that space hold that space see that space mm. yet society is moving us further and further away from from that and I and I fear for rugby, you know, like it's a sport that ACC will be already putting pressure on. You know, the amount of injuries 
um, the cost, I imagine rugby is probably the most expensive sport for ACC. And it's constantly getting dumbed down. I understand the sport's making the men faster and bigger and stronger. And it's crazy what they can do as a physical specimen. But it would be sad that we, you know, we see rugby pass from our our um, culture because in the end it gets shut down because it's too violent. Um, because it's ironically that that ability every Saturday to go and join men to go away and women as well, but to go and join a team to go on a field to go against another group in the dark lands, mm-hmm. I reckon helps people have mental health. There's so many things around it, and if you look at the falling down of our community our society over the last thirty years, we can look at all of the communities, and all all the communities will more than likely had clubs that had to amalgamate because the numbers were dropping and they couldn't exist by themselves. And all of a sudden we've gone from having four rugby clubs in a, in a hometown to two. Then they've got to travel further to get into the city to be part of a wider competition. And all of a sudden families can't travel down and have a pie and a beer watching the sidelines from the hood of the car, you know? So rugby um, as a sport has such a massive influence in our community's health. Um, so does the netball courts and the cricket clubs and the tennis clubs. They all they all become central parts to connection and mental health and supporting each other and working through hard times and doing working bees. There's so many things that fall off it. So do we need to go to the dark lands? I reckon, yeah. And then secondly, we also then need to be part of communities and mm. we find all we find that in all those spaces and yeah. I love that approach and couldn't agree any uh, couldn't agree anymore. Um, and I think everything is now centered around like numbing feelings, right? It's just like, mm-hmm. oh no, it's fine. Don't go to the extremes. Like, don't show massive amount of passion because you come across super confident or cocky or whatever the fuck it is. And also, don't like get super depressed or anxious. You can't do that. You've just got to be this like this organic being that sits in the middle and can't really feel things and become mm-hmm. more like. In uh, mm. automated intelligence, right, or artificial intelligence, like be a robot. Mm. I'm like, whoa, well, hold on. Mm. We're like, we've mm. taken like the human out of humanity. It doesn't make any sense. Like, we're supposed to pendulum from one side to the other. We're supposed to sit in the middle, then also spiral and come back and figure it out and think and fight and all these things. Like, because you figure out what it means to live, you figure out what it means to be mm. a human, mm. and it, it mm. like I'm. I think about a lot of things like I'm like like we said at the start, like I'm a writer too, right? So I'll sit down and I'll usually just my mind will go there. And it doesn't make any sense how we're like just getting rid of all the all the fringes and just been like, you have to go stay between these two lines. And these two lines are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And we're like, we acknowledge we're all different, right? We're like, okay, yeah, whether it's uh, gender, age, like ethnicity whatever it is we all we all acknowledge that we're different however we all have to be the same it's like wait hold on a minute this is like this is hypocritical can we not can we mm. not see this no 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 let, let it be two plus two is five it's five now we're like wait what's going on and it's uh i find it super super strange and i have no idea why it's happening um yeah. no idea how to change it but I think the approach of going into schools is a beautiful one. It's absolutely phenomenal of like, it's like warrior monk, right? Or the, the, um, mm. the philosophical fighter where like, okay, cool. Yeah. You're going to learn how to do some physicality stuff, but then you're also going to learn how to draw and give back and litter pick and, mm. you know, all the, all the little things in society that seem like they're now getting dropped. You know, how many, mm. how many people say hello to you in the street these days, mate? Like, yeah, exactly. I said, I was sweeping, sweeping the front of the gym yesterday morning. Right. I like those, um, manual labor stuff. It's where I'll therapeutic and it's kind of goes back to mm. what I was doing, like back in the day. And I, I like it, you know, like no, no job is beneath you sweeping the front of the gym. And like this, this lad just walks past on the pavement, beautiful morning, right? You couldn't. You couldn't not be in a good mood. Beautiful morning. I just look at, I mate, morning literally looks at me, looks down on the floor and like speeds up. I'm like, what's going oh, on? Oh, wow. I'm like, those little things have now 
Mm. Like no one mm. does them. It's crazy. Mm. And then we mm. then we turn around and Absolutely. be like, how have we got a mental health crisis? I'm like, maybe because we're not That's doing how. the little things. Mm. You know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then it, you know, like they talk about the, you know, there's this whole reset conspiracy conversation about what, you know, I guess globally and around currency and money and stuff. But I wonder whether we're moving to a reset around power. Mm. You know, like it's, it just feels like the things that you and I are talking about have been let go um, and they really haven't been protected like they should be from central government. Mm. But that doesn't surprise me. Mm. And it's achieved what they wanted. And now you and I are watchful of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really worries me because that's what that young fella is. He's walking past you, say good morning. He's unable to connect and go, hey, morning, mate. How are you going? Oh, is this your gym? Oh, what are you doing here? Do you always sweep the footpath? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good, man. I love the Japanese do that too. I love how people look after their front garden. Whatever, you know, there's no conversation. So ironically, you know, if we if we take it deeper, there's a whole sense of a community that's full of mental health and violence is very easy to govern because everybody's so caught up in survival. They're inside their house, lock the door, three locks, close the windows, uh, fences around houses now, man. I just can't. When I was a kid, I grew up, I was lucky I grew up in rural, rural, rural. My closest neighbour was probably three or four kilometres away. Mm. Um, and we only had fences because of the, the animals. Um, but cities in those days had no fences. So old school New Zealand had houses on streets and no fences. So you'd have you'd have your you'd have your um, tidal boundary pegs, mm-hmm. and that would be one house. They used to be the, called the classic quarter acre section. And so you have a street and just quarter acre sections down each side of the street, and then on the other street you've got quarter acre sections backing onto each other, and there are no fences. So essentially, your quarter acre section rolled onto another quarter acre section, rolled onto another quarter acre section, rolled onto another quarter acre section, and behind you the same. Mm-hmm. And so you just had kids. You can imagine what that's like, just kids mm-hmm. everywhere. Fun big park. And that was probably, that, that would have been quintessential urban New Zealand. And now we look at quintessential urban New Zealand and all the fences are probably 1.8 metres tall, 1.85 metres tall. They're all wooden um, panelling. So there's, not, there's no gap. It's all wooden panelling. And the houses are on, what, six or 7,000 square metres. Um, just enough to mow around the outside with a little bit of grass maybe out the back outside the patio. But you can't see the neighbours' windows, and the windows are all covered in anyway, so they're um, frosted. Mm. So there's no, no surprise that we've got people sitting in those houses killing themselves. And so at the moment, you know, uh, I think it was something like 1.6, you know, the stats, 1.6, 1.7 people a day kill themselves. Um, I imagine the last year, though, it's worse than that. So I wouldn't be surprised if we're pushing two a day. So two people a day in New Zealand, they're done. When we don't, you know, the Chiefs lost lost a young fellow yesterday, um, young man, Mm. Uh, I think it was, a, well, I'm not too sure yet what, what it was that was underneath it, but rugby feels a pretty sad story. So I don't know what the details are about it, though. Um, so if we go, I know the Blues lost a young fella in 2017. You know, cycling, I'm involved in cycling. We lost a cyclist uh, um, yeah. recently, it's Olivia Podmore, a lovely, lovely young lady. So there's, there's those stories that we hear about, but two a day. And that's what you're talking about and what I'm talking about. And how's, how's that? You know, when I went to school, uh, 86 was my first year at high school. There were less than 2 million people in New Zealand. I remember that year we had 2 million people. Imagine what New Zealand was like with just under 2 million people. Auckland, the farm in Auckland in 1986 there was farm to Takanini or Manukau Harbour. So Papakura in Auckland was a community village in 1986. Howick and all of those areas were uh, all farms. Farms, 
unbelievable the progress that's happened in such a short time. Uh, that year, I remember when we had 2 million people were like, far out, this is terrible. This is going to be the fragmentation of society. You watch, it's just going to fall apart now because we're overpopulated. <laughs> and then we had four murders that year. Is that it? And I think one of them, if that was it, and I think we had a little girl who was abducted and sexually abused in the um, Napier Marine Parade, I think. So three and a little girl. So those were four for one year. And you just go now, I don't know what, how many people are murdered a week. I'd hate to think, well, I don't know what that stat is, but I don't know what the suicide stat is because that's my business. Um, but I imagine the murder stats are pretty bloody shocking too. So I've got people in rage and people in despair. Mm. You know, so I guess those people that are also killing other people will probably be close to killing themselves. So you've got so much falling down around us. And, you know, that's why I love sport. I think sport needs to be, I'm pleased, high performance sport in New Zealand is looked after and considered important for the well-being and health because it is. Um, I do believe that high-performance contracts, though, should require them to do more community work and more coaching in schools. So those, you know, my worry of the sport is they should be all having to go back one day a week and coach a team, coach kids. Um, I know they're busy and their schedules are busy and they've got big things they want to achieve, but I still would love it if the PEGS funding and all those sorts of things and the rugby contracts all have a community clause. Yeah, many do it because they want to. Yeah, it's a whole thing of like a social enterprise, right? So you you kind of rig the system of of capitalism, you make money, but then also it's written in that you have to then go give some of it back, even if that's just Mm. time, right? And you don't actually just totally roll money everywhere and just make it rain. Um, In the sense of okay, well, I'm going to go do my job so I can you know, make a good living out myself and do whatever I want to do with that. But Mm. I also need it in my contract where a day a week, I'm going to go into a skill or a decile, like one area or whatever it is. Right. Um, I think that's the way to go about it. I think philanthropist tax is the way to go about it. Mm. You know, if you're in Mm. the highest band, okay, great. You give, millions of dollars to the government okay fantastic but that's just creating a middleman right and where's that going i'm i'm northern english so i'm very skeptical of governments like you know so that's in my blood but also i'm like if i'm gonna go make a difference i'm gonna go make a difference like i'm not gonna be like ah david here's like five dollars can you then go give it to the kid who's living on the street i'm gonna be like no i will go buy the kid some food or I'll like you've got a place to stay. That's right. Tonight, I never chat with them. Yeah, go do the go do the work. Like everyone mm, likes mm. to talk, right? Everyone likes to talk. No one wants to walk. Mm. I'm like, if you mm. seriously want some change, go do the work. Mm. 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 Yeah, no, I love it, and I, and and I think that's the that's the big reset that's coming. That the powers of mist, like they're driving. You know, it's big powers. You know, like we. People who do the reading understand how the world works. Oh, yeah. And those powers are currently very active, um, driving an agenda. And I remember my first sociology lecture at Canterbury University in 1991. I walk in, sit down, 300 people in that lecture, which is pretty big for a farm boy. 300 people come into sociology, and I'm sitting in the middle, middle of the room. And a guy that looks just like Karl Marx walks in. Unreal. Like, honestly, he could have been Karl Marx. And he just stood in front of the turntable and stood silently for like five minutes. And I'm just like, who's this guy? And then he looks across the top of his, then soon starts with his microphone and goes, there will be a revolution. That was his first, first sentence, then nothing. He goes, but the big question is, is the leader in this room? Ooh. That was pretty much it. That was his first lecture. He had a he had a Scotch club. He'd have just conversations around whiskey and conversations about you know um, rebellion and revolutions and all that sort of stuff. And then you know you look at the space we're in now. Crikey, it's primed globally. It's primed for mm-hmm. someone who talks a certain way, which connects hearts um, and helps clarity evolved from fear um, and sensibility from fear 
Um, yeah, so I think that the time of us to go back to club footy and back to club tennis and back to club cricket and back to schools that, you know, I'm not saying bring the cane back, but man, we were still cane even when I was at high school and we're fine. Mm. Mm. You know, so there's lots of things that have been lost. There's lots of things that have been lost from our eras before that we think we're evolving and progressing, but our mental health stats and our violence stats don't tell us we're progressing in the slightest. So, yeah, it will be interesting to see where we, you know, where our children, you know, my my grandchildren and your children, what sort of, um, yeah, what that looks like. Yeah, it's it's crazy because I'll I'll think about right enjoying education, education like. I struggled in, like I put in a lot of work, like granted mm-hmm. I worked hard, but was never going to make it as a, as an academic, put it that way. Um, and we'll still struggle with like reading and shit. Like I will, although I'm, you know, a published poet, which is kind of ironic, but um, I'll read something back and be like, well, yeah, that makes sense. And then someone will point it something out. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's the wrong order. Oh, that's completely different. <laughs> Um, and that's just, I don't know. I don't know if that's the way my brain works or whatever, but, um, I'll think back and I'm like, okay, we're taught in a very, very specific way. Right. And you're going to know like this much about the world and that's how you're going to thrive. Sure. uh, Yeah. That's um, right. Yeah. It's all part of the machine. All part of a machine, right? A cog and a wheel. And I, I will wholeheartedly say it is because, Personally, I've gone through the ringer upstairs and now mm. I'm able to look at it through a different light. I'm able to mm. like kind of put on different lenses and look through the glasses and be like, whoa, hold on a minute. Like it's kind yeah. of like I'm in the matrix and I've woken up and, and up yeah, it is the matrix. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it is the matrix, man. That movie was well before its time, but shit, how accurate it is. Totally. Now, Alex, I need to go and have a piss. I'm bursting no for a piss. Go for it. So I'm just going to go for a wee. Um, and I wonder whether you can read out some of your poetry for us to wrap this up because it's gone 11 o'clock. So maybe That's we can fine. finish on some of your poems. I uh, give all. Yeah, I'm intrigued. Apologies for that. And I give over. Like, yeah, okay. So what sort of poetry do you write? No, nah, like it's um it started, it was weird. It took me like six years to make the first one, the first book, which is looks like that. Um time seemed dark. Wicked. Yeah, Wicked. give us your okay. give us your address whenever we stop recording so you don't just publicly okay. announce it and I'll 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 send you a copy. What's the um cover? Is that where you grew up? Yeah, that's Manchester. Um, so that's actually from um, a New Zealand artist. Um, very, very good mate of mine. I would class him as family. Basically, I got over here. I'm on my own. Um, and yeah. Christmas is coming up, right? And he was like, well, and I coached him at the gym. So I met him. So what are you doing for Christmas? I'm like, I don't know. Grab a beer, sit on the beach. Like, I'm 12,000 miles from home and no fucking nobody. Um, and he was like, ah, oh, give us a minute. And it comes back like 15 minutes later and I was like, oh, I've just rang the missus. Like, you're going to come with us and we're going to go with my family to the Coromandel and for like three days or whatever. And I was like, holy shit, what's the Coromandel? <laughs> you know, I'm like, no yeah. idea what's going yeah. on, which was insane. Um, so it's, oh, good. 
Okay. He did the font and his his wife did the uh, did the cover. But um, yeah, that's that's old school Manchester. I'm from west side of Manchester, and that's cobble streets, terrace housing. It's the way it is. It's what I grew up around. You know, everyone was like, like you said, like with um, fences and and everyone's got a quarter acre and stuff. I'm like, no, no, no. Like if you've got two bedrooms, like you're doing extremely well. You know what I mean? It's it's, everyone is shoulder to shoulder. It's a very Very real, very raw and real. Yeah. But I um, I remember listening to to, um, Sting. Oh yeah, Sting doing an interview, and he said he lost his poetry for a long time, and it wasn't until he went home to where he was from, which was down one end of the street was the coal the coal mine, and down the other end of the street was the shipbuilders' yard, and that's where he grew up. And he said it was until he went home. Obviously, we know Sting's very successful um, artist and music, or you know, musician and poetry writer. Mm-hmm. And he said he he didn't get his back. He had a block, and he couldn't get it back until he went home. And he wow. said it was when I went home, I realised I'd been blocking who I was, and where I was from. And it's very powerful. Yeah, man. Like that's what that's what um, you know, influenced this one. Like uh, the, yeah. the journey it took over that six years, and kind of living on the street a couple of times, and and going through that. So mm. that's what made that. The second one's a bit different, um, and then which will be published hopefully in the next like month or so. Um, and I feel like I'm a bit, bit of a block. I'm going more like philosophical <laughs> rather than poetry. You know what I mean? Like I'm kind of yeah, yeah. asking questions and then elaborating on the question myself. And yeah. Maybe I'll go down that route and make one that way. Well, we'll uh, merging, merging into Aristotle. Ah, I give over. <laughs> With a better well, imagine he would have done poetry too. Eh? You imagine those guys back in those days. Mm. They must have all. They must have all the way they write or what they. I don't like. I don't know them very well, but obviously you know bits and pieces. All those quotes. You know when you think about the quotes that we remember them by, they could all come from poems as well. Mm, totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who shall see? Oh, that's wicked. That's wicked, man. I've enjoyed it. I really Thank enjoyed you. today. It's been it's been lovely to connect with you, and I love the story too. Like, you know, obviously, we're just touching on it now, but it sounds like your story is one where, you know, the, I love connecting with people that come from nothing. And there's just again, hey, there's just something about that place where their perspective, their inner peace. Mm-hmm. You know, at times it's tumultuous as well, but there's an inner peace that comes with the tumultuous times as well. That's I love it because it's really. Um, it just feels like what's, I don't even find the right word for it. So it's the humanness. It's real, right? It's raw. Yeah, there's no illusion. There's yeah. no illusion. Everyone's fucking on about everything. You, people don't know who they are. So many bloody illusions and layers that people are so lost, and mm-hmm. they'll. Uh, it's just that I just anyway I love listening and connecting with you it's been fun thank you brother I'll, I'll make it to the south um, South Island I'm in the South Island I'll make it to the North Island sometime we'll go grab a coffee totally totally yeah, come and stay whenever uh, <laughs> whenever you know borders are a little oh. open things there's so much restrictions so there's no point yep. going anywhere now totally however that evolves over the next six months We'll be um we'll catch up. Sounds great. And you have to you have to pop down. Yeah, we'll love I love coming down. Obviously, love the South Island. We've got a girl down at the Dunedin, so wow. Nice. Yeah. Pop okay. down, man. Let me know when you're all right, Alex. Awesome. awesome. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Have a great Take day. Take it easy. See you later. You too.